Greetings, and welcome to the Journey Through Life podcast. I'm Justin Barton, and I'm the host of this show. I'm very grateful to have you as a listener today. Now, as you listen today or to any of our other episodes, past, present, or future, and you have the name or image of a friend or family member pop into your mind, please share that episode with them. I'm a firm believer that there is a reason for random thoughts that just pop into our minds. And if we act on them, we, or someone else, can be greatly strengthened and blessed by those actions. Now, I'm very excited to continue this new series, this new series within the Journey Through Life podcast in 2020 that I've called Journey in Recovery. Now, I've interviewed many different people from many different locations and many different backgrounds on one of each of the 12 steps of recovery as laid out originally in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, before you shut this off and say, hey, this doesn't apply to me, I'm asking you to please give it a shot. Seriously, whether you or I are an actual addict or not, I know that we all have weaknesses in our lives that we may be the only one that knows about it, but we really wish we could move past them. But try as we will, we have not been able to leave them behind. Now, I've experienced that learning and applying the 12 steps of recovery can be and is beneficial to any human being who goes into it with real intent and applies the principles of these steps into their lives. And they will be able to move through any addiction, any habit, any self-destructive or unwanted behavior. Now this can include full-blown drug and alcohol addiction, or something as seemingly dumb, but just as gripping as putting lip balm on, or popping your knuckles, or whatever it may be. On Monday, I released the first part of Step 2 with Harvey E. In that conversation, he talked about his experience in addiction, and his first steps towards recovery. He also started touching on step two. In this second part of that two-part episode, Harvey will dig deep into step two and his experience, strength, and hope. Now, if you're just jumping in right now midstream, I think it would probably be wise to go back and listen to at least the first part of this conversation with Harvey, or you might feel a little lost. It might also be helpful to listen to step one at some point, if not even before You listen to the first part of Harvey's step two if you haven't already listened to that. Because these steps, they come in an order. They were written in an order, and there's a reason behind that. Now, as a reminder, step two reads, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Now, I love the manner in which Harvey discusses addiction, recovery, and step two, and I love the way his sponsor walked him through step two and the rest of the steps. And I love Harvey. This guy's a stud. And it, and I think that you may grow to love him also and his experiences, strength, and hope as he walks through the depths of ho- hopelessness and powerlessness towards a dim light that was shown to him almost six years ago. And now that light is bright and full of warmth. Now you may be introdu- introduced to concepts that you may have never before considered or may even seem contradictory to what you have considered truth for perhaps your whole life. But these concepts are shared as honestly and openly as possible, using real experiences that cannot be denied as being true. While you listen, take mental or physical notes of ideas of self-improvement that pop into your head. Then, at the end of this podcast, review those notes and make a plan about how you can implement them. Now, kick back or hit the road or do house or yard work or whatever you do while listening to podcasts. I love podcasts for that reason. I can do productive things and still be listening and learning. 
anyways, be ready to learn and feel and gain insights like you may have never considered before. Here we go again with part two of Harvey E. Step two. I love how you said, you know, eventually it seems that most people that are doing this have a melding of the old and the new and it becomes one. And, and, and for me, I, I think oftentimes that I look back at my youth and childhood and I say, well, why didn't my church teach me this from the beginning? Why did I understand things so differently and saw that God of anger, of, of shaming, of, of these things? And then as that awakening happens, I go, oh, I think they were telling me that, but it was my own self that was creating these different angles that it was coming from, the, the shaming and the, the anger and, and everything. And now I, I go, oh, it's coming back together and it makes a lot more sense now. That's, that, that's kind of an awakening in my own life with that. And I, I love how you describe that with that melding back together of the old and the new. It's um, interesting that we, there, there's an inventory exercise that's done in uh, one of the books that, that, that we use in SA mm-hmm. uh, called Step Into Action. Um, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and they describe uh, in step two, they actually ask you to write out things like, you know, who are the powerful people in your life? Who were your godly experiences as a child? And what were those like? Because we pattern our relationship to our God, our, our real higher power, mm-hmm. with the higher powers that we experienced as children. Right, So if we had a perfectionist mother like I had, then you go, go into life thinking God is a perfectionist and he expects perfection and nothing less than perfection will ever do. And if you only get 100 out of 103, you didn't do well enough and you mm. failed, you know, you failed me and you are bad and the shame stuff comes in and the toxic shame. And if you had a father who was always working and he was unavailable and he wasn't there for you and he never asked you how you, how it was playing in the park today and how your friends, how you're managing with your friends. So you get to find that God that isn't available for you, isn't there, you know, doesn't care what's going on in here. Yeah. And you had a boss who's critical and whose expectations, you know, I think we grow up thinking of God as kind of the uh, CEO of the company and you're an employee. Mm. Uh, and as long as you're doing your work well, you can stay and have your job. And mm-hmm. the moment you stop being useful and you stop being profitable, you're out the door. Right. And of course, that's not the relationship that I certainly want to have with my higher power today. Right. And today I experience sometimes on a daily basis, I can feel certain times that you know, I'm the prodigal son who went off and spent his money and screwed up and but came back, you know, yeah. and, and I got met at the door with the fattened calf and mm. uh, that, that beautiful, you know, beautiful allegory of that story. Yeah. That's a day-to-day thing for me. I, I have to feel that. And I know he's there for me that way. Very cool. So, uh, Harvey, I want to kind of go through this step two inventory with you. Talk about the your mother and the perfectionist. Kind of walk through that, and then columns three and four. Talk about your your understandings because this this inventory. When I came across this step two inventory, and it was four years into my own process of recovery, 
before I came across this thing, it opened my eyes so much to my relationship with God. So let's kind of do that with just that one. Well, maybe that one instance with your mom and perfectionism, or you can do another one. So I grew up in a home where, uh, as I was saying, um, my, my parents were both Holocaust survivors. Mm. Um, my mother wow. was, uh, was, a, was a perfectionist and she was a neat freak. And uh, we ended up uh, locking the doors three times every night and making sure all the windows were shuttered. And uh, fear was, was, a, was definitely something that mm. we grew up with. That super clean stuff was really nuts. And I grew up in a, in a, in a world where the expectation of, of perfection was so profound. I was the pianist. I, I learned how to play piano when I was a little boy. I had a, I had a, a musical uh, bent, uh, a talent, and somebody encouraged my mother to give me piano lessons. And we did not have a lot of money in the house. Uh, my father worked very hard to put food on the table. He taught us a good work ethic. In fact, I remember very clearly one day, every year, on a certain day of the year, he would take all of us in the car and he would drive us downtown to a street. And I wish I could remember where that street was. I can't. Mm. Um, and it was a cobblestone street. And he would get out of the car. We would all get out of the car. And we would all get on the ground and rub our hands along these cobblestones. As mm. he described having laid those cobblestones in his early life in Toronto, when he, before he got a job as a contractor, he had laid those stones mm. on that street. And he had such a feeling of, he just wanted to share how important it was to have the joy of, of, of good work, mm. you know, of doing good work. And, and he used to do that on a yearly basis. You know, that was the one, <laughs> so it's one of the few stories that I can think of, of my father actually taking us anywhere. Wow, uh, you know, but he would do that on a every year. We had a like an annual visit to this cobblestone street mm. to show his pride in his work wow. and how important that was. You know, but uh, going to piano lessons is what was what I wanted to say, wanted to share with you. My mother used to drive me to piano lessons, and we did not have money mm-hmm. for piano lessons. But my mother decided that it was worth it because I I did have a musical background, musical talent. But all the way to the piano lesson, my mother would drill into me how we weren't going to have meat for dinner tonight because I was giving you piano lessons. Wow. And you better do really, really well when we enroll you in the festival and you have to be playing against other children your age and you've got to win first prize. Wow. And that was the way piano lessons were drilled into me and the work of learning how to play piano. So as much as I love music, and my, uh, interestingly, um, as a quick aside, I, I believe there's a lot of people in the addiction world who have a lot of creative talent. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of musicians, there's a lot of artists, there's a lot of wordsmiths. There are people with real talent, creative talent, And um, I, for one, believe, and I I think that I'm finding this is true, that as addicts, um, we knew we were powerless and we needed some kind of spiritual power. And I found it in music. Mm. And my wife swears that she never would have married me if she hadn't seen me playing the piano. Oh, wow. She, She sensed there was something there. She hardly ever saw it again. 
but when we were, you know, watching me compose or, 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 or play or just be musical and creative in that world was one of the, perhaps one of the only moments that she sensed the spiritual, the real Harvey coming out. Hmm. My mother was this yeah. crazy perfectionist and she could right. drive me, she could drive me nuts and she's 98 years old today uh-huh. and, and she, she still has, you know, if I would give her that power, uh, uh-huh. she could still have that power to, uh, to make me nuts, wow. uh, you know, but I, I have a, a routine around all of that. Yeah. You know, so what did you learn about God from that? What, or what did you put on God from that relationship? Well, oh, so, so God was, was the perfectionist. God had expectations that I could never meet. God uh, was unfair. My mother always treated my older brother with deference, and he was the prince, and mm. the rest of us were, were, you know, were the underlings. And, mm. uh, and, and my mother taught us that as we grew up, we had to respect everyone older than us. So every day, believe it or not, I had to call my mother to check in, and mm-hmm. I had to call my older brother because he was older than me. Mm. My, my younger twin brother had to call me. Oh, and wow. my younger brother had to call all of us. <laughs> wow. you know? And this was a routine that we, she had set up. Mm-hmm. Uh, very early on, we had this routine where, you know, having been a Holocaust survivor, family was super, super important because she loved Understandable. Yeah. Yes, of course. So there was, a, there was an expectation. There was uh, a, a lot of, of, of anger there was a lot of judgment. Hmm. My mother was, uh, was the educated one in the family. My dad was not educated. He would, did not have the, uh, the opportunity to get an education when he was growing up in Poland back in before the war. Uh, hmm. He was a man who worked with his hands, and he did well. He was very proud of his work. But in my mother's world, he was the uneducated uh, brute and never was going to measure up and all of us were going to be professionals not like daddy hmm. you know so she emasculated him and so it was uh, it was difficult and then of course I had my father so we'll go to dad and now and my father worked every day of the week almost uh growing up I wasn't in a religious home so they mm-hmm. would he would work Saturdays he would work Sundays like I said he had he had a tremendous feeling of, of you know that good work is important and he, he understood that but he was so distant uh you know he he stayed away from the house a lot because it was difficult for him to feel valuable in in the home that my mother was creating and and the values that she was professing to us uh you know he just didn't measure up and he knew it you know and he felt it so he would find uh, opportunities i don't know whether he was a sexaholic or not, or what he was, because right, right. uh, I don't, you know, he died when I was twelve, so I never got a chance to really get to know him in an adult mm-hmm. way. Um, he was definitely uh, not there. You know, he was mm-hmm. just a very distant, very weak, very in in many ways. Um, every so often, he would get angry, but it was very. He never touched us. He was afraid. He was afraid he'd kill us. You know, he was very mm-hmm. strong. He was. A, he worked with his arms, his hands. Right. You know, he was a strong man, so he never... My mother was the, was the uh, woman who meted out punishment, uh, physical punishment. She'd run after us and run around the rooms and right. until she caught up with us. <laughs> We'd <laughs> run into the bathroom, lock the door, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we, we did a lot of that. So the two of them, it was a very, very difficult... Uh, so my God, of course, was all of that, you know? 
yeah. in many ways uh, impatient and perfectionist with great expectations that could never be met, and at the same time abandoning, distant, not very powerful in many ways, weak, and 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 uh, and those are the two of them, you know. Yeah, it was hard so, to live there. Wow. So with those, I mean, very contradictory type images of what you learned about God from those two, your parents. Now what do, with the new God that you've hired, what's the truth you choose to believe today in those two aspects? So, yeah. So my God today, uh, I like to think of him as a combination of my, my, my biggest fan. He's the president of my fan club mm. and he's my coach. He's my manager. If this is a wrestling fight, you know, he's in my corner. He's shouting out ideas, you know, give me your left, give me your right, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. watch out. You know, he's, he's there to support me. He's there to give me, to, to try to make me the, the, the best Harvey that I'm ever going to be. Hmm. And, uh, and he wants that for me. He delights in that for me. But he loves me before I go out into the, uh, into the wrestling match and after I'm, whether I win or lose. He's there for me, and he's my greatest fan. And he, he doesn't have, I don't like the word expectations because that brings horrible memories for me. So I had to find a God that doesn't have expectations. Mm. So I talk about him as delighting in me when I, when I do, you know, his will. When I, when I live a, a godly life, a spiritually present existence, of course, he delights in that. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't, you know, he doesn't feel any worse about me. He doesn't hate me any less anymore or, or, or disappointed in me if I don't manage today. My job is to wake up every morning with a new resolve to be the best Harvey that I can be, do all I can during my day. At the end of my day, step 10, 11, 12, 10 says to me, you know, I, I go over my day and see where did I miss the mark? Mm-hmm. Right. And that's how I look at sin. Right. Sin mm-hmm. is is not shaming anymore. There's guilt. Right. But guilt right. and shame are very, very different. Guilt is I miss the mark. Shame is I am. The, <laughs> I am bad. Right. And I didn't do something bad. I am bad. I never I never want to go back to that again. That's that's toxic shame. I'm I'm not going there. Guilt is something that I can relate to on a daily basis. And I do because I don't want to carry it to the next day. The end of the day, I say, "Oh, you know what? I was I was rude to my wife today. I wasn't kind. I wasn't considerate. I, I have to make amends, and I'll do that right away. And then I get good with God, and I go to bed and I meditate into sleep, understanding that I've done everything I'm supposed to do today, and tomorrow's a new day." Hmm. So I love your perspectives that you're bringing into this. It's uh, it's helping me open up my eyes even more to you know step two, a place that. I think, oh, I've got this stuff figured out. I, for several years, I've been working through this stuff and sponsoring and having a sponsor and everything, and I got it figured out. But when, when you talk to somebody else and get their perspective, it just expands that understanding that much more. And I really appreciate that from you, Harvey. It's, it's been very helpful to have this conversation with you. Earlier in the conversation, you mentioned, uh, I think you said five kids and 18 grandkids you got this big family. Tell me what the family dynamic in your first, in your addiction and now in the recovery uh, process, how, how are they involved if at all? So 
in my addiction, my children uh, most of the time were in the way, <laughs> I have to admit, which is a yeah. horrible thing to have to say. Yeah. Uh, but uh, they were in the way, you know, they, uh, gosh, you know, I didn't have to think about, you know, having to be, pick up this kid at this particular time. I could have run downtown and been there, done right. that, all those things, you know, so they were in the way. They were really in the way. Uh, today, uh, thankfully, each one of them in turn has opened up to me, shared with me some of their own feelings of uh, resentments that they have about what I was or wasn't there for, mm-hmm. um, how I missed the boat, if I did and I did in every one of their cases. Mm-hmm. Um, part of my amends in the ninth step, as you get old, as you get further along in recovery, you start to realize that there's stuff you didn't even realize you had done to your children that you now have to go back. I appreciate today, which something I didn't appreciate in the first little while, was how little I patterned what normal coupleship should have been. Hmm. That my children should have had a paradigm on which to base how they relate to their spouses. Hmm. And they didn't get that from me because my wife and I didn't relate Right. You know, we lived a loveless marriage in a very distant kind of, you know, we walked past each other, you know, and we, we did everything right in terms of raising the kids and paid for their schooling and, and mm-hmm. got them where they needed to get to. And thankfully, they're all in happy, what I believe is, I hope, happy marriages and, and with wonderful, you know, healthy children and all of that. But that's in spite of me, I can tell you for sure. Mm-hmm. And, and today, I, we have a, a, um, a tradition in the, in the Jewish faith um, before the Day of Atonement that we call our, the people that we care about mm-hmm. and we, we ask for forgiveness for anything we might have done in that year. And I remember the first year that I, I did that after I got into, started in recovery, and four out of my five children said, oh, daddy, what are you talking about? Of course, we forgive, I forgive you. You didn't do anything. You didn't do anything. Right, right. And they wouldn't even admit it. Mm. My second daughter, her name is Leah. I called Leah and I said, I'm calling. It's, you know, it's the day before the Day of Atonement. And I just want to tell you that I, I, I'm really, really sorry. And, and, I, and I want you to, you know, I hope that you can you know, forgive me, uh, which isn't a real men's, right? Because in the men's, right. you don't ask for forgiveness. Uh, that's something that, you know, you're not doing it for the forgiveness. You're doing right. it for the to unload. But I, anyway, in, in, this, in this religious situation, you know, you call up your kids and I, and I asked for forgiveness. I said, I hope you can forgive me. And she said, I'm working on it. Mm. And that was um, one of the most profound. I hung up and I, I just started bawling. Yeah. Because she was the only one who had been honest enough to say what was really going on with her. And then she could say, I'm working on it. You know, mm. today, five years later, we have a tremendous, tremendous relationship, I believe, you know, and uh, it's, it doesn't compare. And, and they regularly hear from me, I hope, uh, I, I, in my living amends, if I can be that light to them to appreciate and help them appreciate that whatever they're going through, as I understand now, you know, God loves them. And God is perhaps giving them a lesson rather than a gift, or maybe I can't see the gift yet. I can Mm -hmm. see the lesson, but I need to see the lesson in what I'm going through today and see it as a lesson that God is sharing with me, with them, in order for us to become the better people that we were meant to be. 
So, you know, everything in my life today is a lesson or a gift. And eventually even the lessons are gifts. Hmm. So how, how is the relationship between you and your wife? How has that changed over the last handful of years as you've uh, been working your, your recovery? So interestingly, my, in 2012, mm-hmm. um, my wife confronted me with the understanding that she had figured out that I was living a double life. Hmm. And that's what brought me into my first therapist. So it had uh, been, she, she was unaware of it until, or at least 35 years to in you. Right. Yeah. Or, okay. or, to, or to herself. Right. Right. I, I think she probably in the back of her mind, you know, I mean, I had done a, a really good job of what we call gaslighting, right. Making her think she was crazy. Right. And she, when she noticed things or when mm-hmm. she found parking tickets for places that I should never have been near and, and, uh, you know, visa bills. I was pretty careful about visa stuff, but you know, there was, you know, it, it shocked me that how, how she could have not figured it out all those years. Right. And when she finally confronted me, she brought actually in this room right here where I am, uh, she told me to come in and sit down and she pulled out a letter that she had prepared and she read this to me and she says, Harvey, you need to get help. Um, and she, she was determined that I should, that she wanted to stay. Mm-hmm. You know, she didn't throw me out. She said, Harvey, I, you know, I love you. I want you to get help. You need to work on this. And mm-hmm. again, it wasn't as an addict. She didn't get that either. She didn't know right. I was an addict. She just knew that I was same-sex attracted and she wanted me to get help in that. So I went immediately. I was, it, was, it was the scariest moment in my life, probably. Certainly one of the most scariest moments in life. But in the, in the end, it's, again, it's, a, it's another moment where I today understand that had she not been through that at that moment if she hadn't confronted me and realized what I was up to other things that happened later in my day in the the same year in fact I I got arrested for stuff I did 40 years before with young boys in a choir that I conducted and I uh, pleaded guilty for that and if she hadn't figured out what was going on in my life until then God only knows what she would have done you know if the the police had called me in and and that right. was the first time that I'd had to explain all of this, you know, right. She wow. already had, in this case, she had six months to prepare. Uh, so today I understand that it was scary as heck, but God was out of present. I mean, that was, that was such a gift mm. and that it, it, it prepared her for the, the craziness that my life turned into and, right. uh, you know, and, and all the stuff that she was there for me and stood beside me, held my hand. She was, she was really support super support and that's that relationship i'm assuming has blossomed has gotten stronger than it's ever been am i correct in that in many ways um she's a little jealous of the program Mm. because for me depending on how crazy my life is and how restless and irritable and discontented i can get Mm -hmm. let myself which i try not to of course but if I do, I know that I need a meeting or I know that I need to work harder with my sponsees. I need to make a phone call. Or, and she's looking for, for what every woman wants, I think, you know, attention, quality time, you know, the languages of love, which, I, which you may or may have, you know, that yeah. understand, right? So every woman has a different language of love, uh, you know, primary, secondary. I have different languages of love than she has. So, you know, for her... Uh, at a certain point, I remember her saying to me, I'm so sick of, you know, how much time you're spending at meetings and how much time you're spending on the phone. And you walk into this room and you close the door on me and you leave me out of it. And 
And I feel so like there's a mistress that you have a new mm. mistress, like you have a new addiction. Right. Right. So in, in jest, I often say to her, well, if you're interested, I'll go back to the old one. <laughs> you know, and she's, she's never taken me up on that. Right. Right. Um, you know, and in early, I remember we did a cruise after two years and on the cruise, there was a woman on the cruise who was, there was of course meetings every day in the, on the, on the ship. Friends of Bill W., they call it. Oh, cool, cool. Right? So I went, I would go up, upstairs to the meetings. I was the only sexaholic in the room, as far as I know, but there were alcoholics uh, abound, you know. And, right. And, and there was this woman who had like 20 years of, mm-hmm. of, of sobriety. So I shared with her that my, my wife was feeling, you know, even in that few minutes that I would go up to a meeting for an hour before dinner, she would like, why are you leaving me? We're on vacation together. We should be 24-7. Of course, I don't know how to do 24-7 with anything, but for right, me, right. You know, at the time, it was very hard for me, and I needed to get on my internet and talk to my sponsees, and I needed to go to that meeting. And so she said to me, she says, Harvey, just hang on, because you won't need as much, probably, and she'll learn to respect and appreciate your self-care. Hmm. Um, so that's, that's been the work. You know, hmm. she, she does love me, and she does care, and we've had a lovely uh, family and a lovely life together. And, and we actually have uh, an intimate relationship today, which we hadn't had for many years, uh, which is wonderful. But she still, you know, every so often, she feels like I'm number two, you know? Mm. And my sponsor always says, as we said a little bit earlier, the foundation of my life has to be the connection to my higher power. And then there's a priority of what it comes next, you know, what comes in my life. And in my life, once I'm breathing, so to speak, family and wife come first, yeah. job comes second, and sponsees and people in my program and community come third. Hmm. And I have to make sure that I always know that there's a priority, that that priority makes sense. Yeah. And service doesn't have to be making coffee at meetings. Service can be available, being available for your wife and being there for her and spending the time with her. And that's just as important and it's just as valuable. And, and the truth is, as we appreciate, I think, in the program as sponsors, we are learning. It's kind of like a laboratory where we learn how to treat human beings again and be human beings again. And the work that we learn in working with sponsees should be there to translate into how we relate to our families and to our employees or our patients or whatever we have. Mm. Oh, very good. So has, has your wife ever gotten involved in like SNON or any of the recovery things for spouses and family or anything like that? Yeah. So she does have a group. Um, she, uh, she did go to SNON, although she found it again, I remember early on, <laughs> I used mm-hmm. to do a lot of phone meetings and mm-hmm. I would be speaking to people all over the country and I would ask about, cause my wife had not yet ever gone to an Essendon meeting and I would ask you know in the parking lot people in the meeting after the meetings and we call that the parking lot Mm -hmm. and I would say so does your wife go to Essendon you know what do you think you know and they would say and some of them either would swear by it or they would swear at it Um, Mm. and and the combination you know the opposite like I said wait a minute is Essendon good is Essendon bad Mm. Uh, and of course just like any 12-step meeting can be a healthy meeting or an unhealthy meeting if it's If it's concentrating on the solution, then you're in, you know, that it's a great meeting. And if it's concentrating on the, the problem, it's a crappy meeting, you know. And right. if the women are sitting in a room talking about how 
crappy life is and how they need to have their husbands on six month, um, uh, you know, polygraphs and, 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 and there's no faith and there's no, there's no trust and they're not gaining any trust. And, you know, then we call that a wine cellar. <laughs> yeah. Know? And yeah. if it's a wine cellar, you, you know, my wife found Essanon in Toronto to be a wine cellar. So mm. she stopped going, mm. you know, so her work is with people. She makes phone calls to people outside of the city, like I do, uh, where she has found women in recovery. Um, and we've done some work as couples in recovery. And we have done some work in, in therapy with, fa- with family counseling, with wife, uh, you know, fam- couple uh, marriage counseling. And we've mm. done all of those things and we're still in Good. the process, you know. So, right. so, but there is that, you know, and she has a group of women that she gets together with, which is also very, very helpful. And oh, yeah. Essanon just happens not to be it for her. No, and that's that's great. I'm glad that she has found her group where where it can be productive and not, like you said, a wine cellar where we're man bashing or, you know, spout, whatever it may be. And I don't ever find those when I talk to people or my spouse or anybody about those things. I've never found those to be helpful, although other people seem to get some sort of satisfaction out of doing that. So my my wife's very first meeting was a Wednesday night in June of the first year that I was in, I was in recovery. I was in the program. I started in January, June, I was five months sober and I went on a retreat to do some work on my same sex attraction work. And then I came back and I had a bit of a crash because it was such a high and then it would, you know, you have that moment afterwards where you go back to life and, you know, and everything starts to come, you know, and that was exactly the Wednesday night that I had to go downtown to a meeting, which was, in the middle of the, the most incredibly dense uh, drug culture neighborhood. Mm-hmm. There's a church down in that area. Mm-hmm. And my wife was at an Essendon meeting. Mm-hmm. I was in a church that was surrounded by buildings where every room building had an escort that I used to attend. And oh, visit. wow. So it was a pretty scary place for me to go to on a yeah. good day. Yeah. I don't know why they made the meetings there, but that's where it was. And I came out of that meeting. It was the closest I ever came to losing my sobriety in, in the six years that I've been in the program. Wow. Um, and I remember my wife came home and she says, Harvey, do you know there were three women who came to me and asked me if I've got you on a polygraph, mm. six-month polygraph. And, she's, and I said, oh, yeah. And, and I was like waiting to hear what she'd say. She, mm-hmm. said, she says, you know, it didn't sound right, but I have mm. put my finger on what was bothering me. Harvey, what do you think is bothering me? <laughs> she asked me. Uh. And I said, I don't know what's bothering you, but I can tell you what's bothering me. <laughs> yeah. I said, you know, uh, a polygraph test, when I'm waiting the six months for the next polygraph test as a wife or as a husband, whoever the, the partner of, a, of the addict is, for that entire six months, I don't have any trust. I have no trust in that person, right? I go to that, he goes to that polygraph or she goes to that polygraph and she passes or he passes, right? So then retroactively, I know I should have trusted him for the last six months, but I got nowhere in practicing that effort Mm. to be trusting. And tomorrow I'm going to start again, not trusting him for the next six months until the next polygraph. So expecting failure. Well, not only expected, but it's, it's not building 
Mm-hmm. The opportunity, just like meetings, are about mm-hmm. learning how to be honest and practicing that honesty muscle, which, of course, as addicts, we never had. Right. We lie, we lie about everything. Even when we don't have to lie about, even for nothing, we, we'll, we'll lie. Uh, you know, so I, I don't understand how that, that's supposed to be helpful. Uh, and yet there are many, many therapists and many, many people in the Essendon world who expect and demand and, and, and have an understanding that this is like par for the course. I don't understand why it's par for the course, but that's my own personal, uh, my two cents. <laughs> yeah, no, I like that. I like that. What is your take? So here's something that I run into fairly regularly in meetings that I attend. Somebody comes in and I'll just get through these 12 steps one time through, and then I'll be healed and disappear and run off and never come back. I'll be healed at that point. Or That's good maybe, already. That's good. Yeah. If they come to the meeting ready to do the 12 steps, you're already ahead of the game. Uh, yeah. In my experience, the newcomers come in and, they, and they've just been caught by their wives. And the only way they were able to stay in the house was, was admitting that they were, or pretending that they admitted they were addicts. Right. right? That they could say to their wives, I'm sick. I'm sick. Mm-hmm. Help me. I'm a victim. You know, and then they go to meetings, right? Right. But, but what I mean is not, not even working the 12 steps, just reading through the 12 steps at these oh, meetings, yeah. you know, going through sure. the reading process and, oh, I've read through it. You know, I set my book on the shelf every week and come back every Tuesday, pull the book off the shelf and go back to the meeting and read. Right. How do you combat that maybe natural tendency of, of human nature to just do the minimum necessary and figure out, hey, when I reach this line, I'll be good and I'll never have to worry about it again. So you're going to find there's two different groups in this, right? There's one guy who shows up and he doesn't do much of the work, as you described. He's done a little reading and he shows up to meetings. It's like bowling. You know, mm-hmm. they go bowling every Tuesday. So they go to a meeting every Tuesday and it's great. And they, and they love the fellowship. They get into it. They, 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 the camaraderie, you go for coffee afterwards, you go for whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's wonderful. And usually within a few months, they stop coming because their wives have forgiven them. And they go back to their life or they continue coming because it's like I said, it's like bowling and they enjoy it and they come mm-hmm. and they don't do any steps and they stay sober. Mm. Right. Because they really weren't addicts in the first place. Mm. Right. Cause if they were really addicts, they wouldn't stay sober. Right. right. I, I can't stay sober without a program. Mm-hmm. I've learned that. I know that. Right. If a guy sits in a room and he's sitting here and he's not doing steps and he doesn't have a sponsor and he's just doing a little reading every week and he's staying sober, you got to wonder, you say, whoa, you know what that's, what does that mean? You know? Mm. And, and, and that's, that actually can mess up the newcomer because a newcomer meets, meets somebody in a meeting and he's, he's not doing steps and he's, he looks pretty happy and he likes the camaraderie. And he likes the, you know, the, the fun of the meetings and there's a joy to his life. And you can mistakenly believe, oh, wow, you know, I don't have to do this much work. Look at him. He's not doing anything. You know, he pretends he's doing steps. Yeah, he doesn't even have a sponsor. And he's sober. And he's sober, you know. Then, of course, there's the other group of people, the other half of the room, which is full of people who are actually, they really are addicts. And uh, oftentimes they're dry and they, they don't look happy. Hmm. You know, they're at the jumping off point, as the big book says. You know, they're right. living a very, very ugly life. It's a very, very horrible life because every day they, they, they have the, the, you know, the scale in front of them. Should I act out or shouldn't I act out? And the pain of acting out and the pain of being sober 
is pretty much the same or yeah. maybe there's a little more consequences to one side which keeps him sober for a little while because his wife's threatened to leave him whatever and, and it can work out that way but mm-hmm. not an existence that, that that i want to live i no. never want to live that way again i did that for eight months that was hell that was hell and you see that in rooms you see that you know people come and they do the, the most minimum amount of work but they're either going to be happy and okay because they weren't addicts in the first place or you're going to see them get more and more dry, drunk, and they get really, really unhappy. Mm. They're angry and they're and they're and they're just sad and they're they're just, they're just you can see that they're not getting what they need and they haven't found they haven't found the recovery they haven't found the answer the solution is there but they're just not ready to to grab it. Now I'm going to ask you to define four words that that maybe you've never thought about this, but maybe you have, I don't know. If you wouldn't mind defining the words abstinence, um, sobriety, recovery, and healing, define those four different terms and see, I'm just curious to see what your take on those four terms might be. Okay. The difference so, in your own mind. All right. So abstinence for me is, is stopping the behaviors uh, and nothing more. If I'm abstinent means I didn't go down to a, to an escort. I did not masturbate. I did not do anything physically to, uh, in my addiction. That's abstinence. It's not what I'm looking for because, you know, I need progressive victory over lust. Uh, I need the fantasy in my head is it's always there if I let it be there. Right. Okay. So sobriety, as we already kind of discussed, is that place where uh, I'm really not acting out uh, for a length of time. I'm abstinent. And I'm, uh, hopefully, I'm doing program, I'm doing something, but I'm not in recovery because I haven't, I haven't, I'm not living in the, in the solution. I'm just living sober, which mm. is great because the physical part of the disease, um, you know, the brain chemo- chemistry, the neurochemistry stuff has improved. So I, I'm going to be in a physically better place. Uh, I'm going to probably have a little more energy than I had. Hopefully, I'll be a little more honest, a lot more honest than I was. But it does, it's not living happy, joyous, and free, as the big book describes. Mm-hmm. Um, recovery is where I want to live, uh, and that's living happy, joyous, and free. And uh, in the big book, on page 84, uh, it describes the 10th step promises, which nobody ever reads at a meeting. <laughs> right. almost, almost nobody ever reads at a meeting. The bottom of page 84, and I'm going to quickly read it to you because I think this is the crux of what recovery should be. And we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even lust. I change it for lust. For by this time, sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in sexual acting out in lust. If tempted, we recoil from it as from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally, and we will find that this has happened automatically. We will see that our new attitude towards lust has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That's the miracle of it. We're not fighting it. Neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we had been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. We are neither cocky nor are we afraid. That is our experience. That is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. 
powerful. That is, I, I love that. And I, I, I've read that and I remember hearing that before, but the way you brought that into this just kind of ties it up nice and neat. What was the fourth word? A healing. Healing. <laughs> and that's, and isn't that the point, right? Yep. The healing is in your recovery and it's a day-to-day life's work for me. If every day I wake up with the understanding that I can heal myself or the people that I've hurt or the world, Abraham Maslow, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he was, yeah. he was a therapist and uh, he, he believed in that concept of finding meaning in life and, and purpose. That was the top of his pyramid. Hmm. Right. And I think he was a forerunner to what we understand in the 12. He, he appreciates the 12 steps. I think he's very much like that. You know, hmm. he talks about shame. He talks about self, uh, you know, finding your own self-worth hmm. along the way. Uh, and the top of that pyramid is meaning and purpose in life. And, and I think that uh, my meaning and purpose in life is that healing. The word healing is the top of that pyramid for me. And it's healing myself and it's healing the world, it's healing the people I love and, I've, and I care about in my life, those I've hurt and those I never hurt. Um, the people that I work with as sponsees, you know, who are my sponsees today, that's where I want to be. That's where Harvey wants to live. That's awesome. Have you written, have you ever read the book sitting in a rowboat? Throwing marbles at a battleship. Right. That was another life changer for me. I I think that that description that he has of throwing marbles at that battleship and how today he's surrounded by other rowboats with men with blow torches and he looks across and he sees the stacked up old battleships that are there that, you know, that represent all of these men's own struggles and own wars with their battleship that they battled with the help of other people in their rowboats surrounding them and being there for them. I, I think that's a tremendous, tremendous visual mm. that I, I think is really powerful in the, in the program. Yeah. And I think I'll link to that in the show notes of this so that others can find that because it, <laughs> it was a game changer for me. And I was, I had already gone through the program. I'd already worked the steps and I was sponsoring and I think it was my second or third person I was sponsoring. And he said, Hey, have you ever heard of this book? And I was like, no, I never have. And he shared uh, it with me and I was like, you know, and the stuff that he writes to the women, it's also very, amazing. very powerful, amazing, very, very yeah. powerful. I appreciate today, my sponsor made it very clear to me that we did step four, step five, six, and seven. It's not a one shot. And you sort of said this, oh, let's, we'll go through, we'll read through the 12 steps once and I'll be okay. Mm-hmm. Anyone who really is, is serious about their recovery, just as we appreciate that new amends are going to come up, even with the same people I already did my amends, as I described with my children, and appreciating that I needed to go back to them and say, hey, you know what, I, I, I was not there for you in this way, which I didn't even appreciate until now that I can appreciate what I was supposed to be and, and what kind of a parent, what was my role as a parent, which I completely abdicated. Mm. You know? And now I understand that I could have been, my wife and I could have been the paradigm for their life and understanding what my daughter's role should be next mm. to their husband, what their, my, my son's role should be with their wives, uh, all of that. You know, the same way I, I, I know today 
I have done my four step three times mm. in five years. Uh, and I'm about to do it again. I take a, a weekend off mm-hmm. and I go to a quiet place. I go up to my cottage and I take the weekend off and I write a new four step mm. because there are still defects. There are still assets and those assets need to be addressed as well. You know, the big book talks about being a store owner and looking at the shelves and seeing what's good on the shelves and what's not good on the shelves. And many people make the mistake of, of actually getting quite frightened of doing a four step because it's all about the defects. Um, my sponsor spends at least a few hours before he does the defects, before we talk about selfishness and stuff, he talks about your assets because mm. he wants to make sure that you appreciate that when you're all, when it's all done, you're not a bag of garbage. You're not an empty bag of junk. Yeah. and you've mm. thrown everything away I, you know and i'm and that's part of that same beginning when we talked about that working on that self-esteem and and positive affirmations and and dropping the ego down and appreciating you don't need this ego anymore and appreciating that god loves you and you're his child and and all of the positive you know affirmations of, of being that son of god and knowing that he loves you unconditionally and that, that you're worthy and he's got so much to be grateful for, all of that's the antidote to that low self-esteem, mm. you know, and that four-step, those assets that you need to start with and appreciate that, hey, you're not just junk, you know, you're sensitive, you're actually a good communicator, you're musical, you're a good listener, mm-hmm. you're a good, you know, all of these things that you are, in some cases you've taken them to extremes that are bad, Right. And yes, we have to fix that. And the 12, the 12 and 12 talks about some of our defects actually being assets that we took to extremes that, were, mm. that, weren't, that weren't good. Yeah. I, I want to be a person who cares about doing the best I can and being proud of my achievements, like my father with his cobblestone floor, uh, road, right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to get to the point where I don't care about trying to be good and trying to do well and trying to achieve. Right. I just don't want it to be a perfectionist craziness. I don't want to go to crazy places with it but i uh, there are positive things mm. that are you know that can be taken to extreme that we need, that i need to work on and every year i go back and i look at my my assets and i read my old stuff and i start again and i look at what i what what am i still working on you know what what haven't i what haven't i achieved yet what's what does harvey keep grabbing you know a, back from the bag that he put in front of god's throne because i describe the the seventh step as having asking God to take my defects. Right. And I have yep. a bag and I put them in front of him, you know, and, and then, you know, but the next day I just grab them back. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah. I can do that. You know, the first time my wife and I, we were going to a recovery meeting uh, and I had finished the steps and we went to a recovery meeting and I got really angry at her because she wasn't supporting me with my children. Mm. She says, it's not my job. And, and she was quite upset. And uh, I almost threw out of the car. Yeah. And I got to the meeting and I came home from the meeting. I called Cameron and I said, Cameron, I think I have to reset. And he says, what do you mean? He says, did you lose your sobriety? I said, well, I lost my emotional sobriety because I just screamed and swore at my, at my wife. And I, I vowed I would never do that. I gave away that yeah. anger. I gave, put it in that bag and I put it in front of God already. Yeah. I said, he says, yeah, you took it back. He says, I, you know, just do the work, you know, go back and do your four five, six, seven again. You know, and you have to do that spot inventory mm-hmm. every day. And I do yeah. spot inventories most every day. There's always yeah. something, you know, that I have to, you know, that's another topic. <laughs> yep, yep. No, it's good stuff, man. 
Well, Harvey E. in Toronto, one last thing before we close this up. I'd like to invite you to maybe give a little testimonial or a, a pep talk to somebody who's hearing this and battling themselves or somebody else about uh, taking that next step into admitting a problem and going into trying to recover from addiction they've maybe been battling with for decades. All right. So can I do it as a prayer? Absolutely. Please. Okay. So my dear father in heaven, please, you know, I'm so grateful for all you have taught me for all that you have shown me in my life, all the gifts, all the lessons you have uh, shared with me and that I'm here in this world today uh, with the uh, understanding that my purpose in life and my meaning is to help those who have yet to find the hope that is here, that you have, that you have in your hand that is stretched out waiting for them to just grab on, find the fellowship, find the, the help, be able to understand that just because they can't do it alone, that doesn't mean that they can't do it. And that in fact, you have placed in this world so many wonderful people, so many wonderful meetings and, and places and opportunities for those of us who desperately needed you and appreciate today that you were found, that you were available, that you were there in the fellowship and in the meetings and in the, in the steps and that you, you offer that, that, that hope and that it's there for all of us. And, uh, and I say that in your name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Very powerful. I am so grateful that you have been willing to do this. Um, you've opened my eyes and heart even that much more to, to this process and the importance of getting it out there into the, at least where people can find it and take action with it. So there you have it. Step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. I once again want to thank Harvey for this great conversation and also all of the other guests that I've had and will have. Now, if you felt something in your heart or mind that is motivating you to act on it, whether that be to share this episode or this entire series of the Journey Through Life podcast with a loved one, or to start taking some steps yourself to get a personal shortfall strengthened, Please, I ask of you, act on it. It can and will make all the difference in your life. Now for the housekeeping part of the program. Please go and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at, at JTL Podcast. Like and follow us. Check us out online at www.jtlpod.com. Drop us a note about your own experiences, strength, and hope at thejtlpodcast at gmail.com. There's a the at the front of that. Visit our sponsors who I purposely did not put at the beginning of the episode or any other for the next 12 weeks, but they are helping this podcast continue forward. They are alifeuntold.com, shepherdbrackets.com, and radfordpineshomedecor.com. Use promo code Justin with a life untold to save 10% on your order and JTLPod5 at Shepherd Brackets and Radford Pines to save 5% on your orders there. Now, step three will be coming out on Monday, January 20th. And because 
I had so many experiences while interviewing the people for this series with Step 3. Seriously, almost every single person went back to Step 3 and talked about the importance of it. So anyways, because of that, there will be two episodes next week on Step 3. I interviewed two separate people about Step 3, so I could get a couple of different perspectives. Anyways, so there will be one that comes out on Monday and one on Thursday. And now these conversations that I've recorded in this journey in recovery have been life-changing for me as I have been applying many new concepts into my own daily life from the lessons I am learning, and I am definitely becoming a different and better person for it. I hope you are too. Have a great week. Press forward one day at a time. Mm -hmm.